Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. Good to see you all again. <laughs> right. Uh, we're back. Back for another uh, round of Bruce Strong. And uh, I tell you, it has been uh, an interesting uh, shift going over to Zoom for these shows. You know, John, he's now taking the opportunity to go sit in the hop, hop field. Apparently, he's got hops like year round uh, that are always, always green and ready to go. And I think, you know, in the hop field, he's not got good uh, internet connectivity because I think we've lost John, unfortunately. But what I will say is what we haven't lost is our fine sponsor, Blickman Engineering. Blickman Engineering and Blickman with a a B, an M, and something else. Uh, You can find them on the web. And uh, they have been producing great... Uh, they have been producing great brewing equipment uh, for a long time, decades now, I think. And they've been a fine sponsor of our show, taking care of the uh, cost of producing this show so you don't have to pay a penny. Uh, so if you get a chance, check out Blickman Engineering and uh, tell, them, uh, tell them we said hi. Our show today mm-hmm. is all about the history of American brewing and how that kind of got started, and then you know some of the innovations of uh, uh, American brewing over the over the past. And our guest is uh, none other than uh, Greg Casey. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Jamil? I'm I'm hanging in there. It is yeah. it's been a challenge. Uh, running a business uh, during the pandemic has been uh, more challenging than I have enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, our son's dealing with that well here in Colorado in his brewery and tap room and yeah it's been a difficult year yeah yeah well there you go uh but you know i think i think we're starting to come out of it and we're starting to uh uh you know recover it's gonna be it's gonna be a a good year for american brewing i think uh you know going forward so how did you get into uh researching and studying uh the history of american brewing yeah, it really occurred uh, towards the end of my career. Uh, I was basically, my, as it says, agriculture and yeast, my passion was yeast. 
mm -hmm. uh, lager yeast. It was a, a chance meeting with the entourage of August Bush in Copenhagen uh, that led me in 1985, make a long story short, to work for Anheuser-Busch and Stroh and Coors, Molson Coors. But uh, towards the end, uh, I started every, and I have quality assurance responsibilities, mm -hmm. and every um, QA uh, person is sometime or another is going to face the issue, is there any caustic left in, uh, did, did, did we rinse it well? What's you know, and the old sodium test is, yeah, it's pretty, it's not that specific. It's not, uh, you know, without a process capability uh, survey to know uh, what your normal levels are. It's kind of difficult to say yay or nay, especially when you're looking at a plant manager that's looking at you saying, can I release this? And you're the guy making the call. So I was researching to see if there were more contemporary test methods, you know, my ASPC background as well. Um, and in the course of that, I came across a a reference is called the Turner Adulteration Bill. Uh, you know, a Google search can take it down a rabbit hole a lot of different ways. And uh, I didn't think when I clicked on that that I'd spend the next 14 years researching the history of the American lager brewing industry, mm. uh, specifically most of that being adjunct lager brewing. Mm. So uh, that's what sort of started me on this road. Uh, I asked Bill Coors uh, if he knew, had heard of this in the 1890s that Congress almost outlawed, you know, we almost had an American Ryan High School vote. And uh, when Bill said, no, he'd never heard of it. I figured, well, nobody has. So, um, and I love history. Um, you look at my library in the other room, it's, there's no science, uh, it's all history. So it, it's kind of allowed me to merge a professional background with a passion in retirement that's aligned with my, you know, desire to understand better uh, history, particularly of the uh, American lager brewing industry. It's fascinating. You know, I love, uh, you know, old breweries and just kind of, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's surprising. I was at uh, Fuller's doing a, a collab brew with them uh, uh, a while back. And I went and looked in the log books for, you know, a hundred years previous on that same day, a hundred years ago, this is what they were brewing. Yeah. So cool to me that to think that you know I was you know part of you know that little chain of brews that have been made at that brewery for you know 150 years. I was kind of inserted in that chain, and now you know I'm in the log books, and it's you know it's got a life of its own. And yeah. maybe somebody you know 100 years from now will be looking at that, going, "Oh, what were they brewing?" And I'm like, "Oh my God, they brewed a uh, we brewed a blackberry goza." I bet you they will. I, mean, I, I had a comparable experience with uh, Jackie Marty at August Shell. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he opened up the old log books for me. Right, right. Uh, and we had a great time looking at them. And he, he, many of the materials, he wasn't familiar with what they were, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of pre-gelatinized cornflakes or, you know, these commercial names right. uh, through my research. So it was kind of a, a wonderful moment where he and I were going back and forth, his heritage, my weaving in some of my findings as to what this was. Uh, I just sent him... Um, uh, 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 1884, I believe, a hopjack that August Shell had uh, patented and uh, advertised in Trade Journal, and he, you know, Jackie, oh. he knew of it, but he he never seen an ad for it or seen an image of it. So, yeah, that's part of the our history is fascinating, and it's not just you know everybody I work for Bud Miller Gores. Um, there's all these hundreds, if not thousands, of brewers right. uh, I never heard of. You know, yeah. my Canadian background. It's um, funny you mentioned. August Shell because I, I've been there and yeah. uh, at the time uh, they were they were showing me the the Cypress uh, fooders I think it was Cypress wasn't it or was it Spruce 
the 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 giant fooders that they mm-hmm. were setting up they hadn't got them up and running yet mm-hmm. and uh but one of the things i thought was really cool there is they had their own little museum and they had yeah. stuff like here's the the still that grandpa was using uh during prohibition to make a you know make some some uh some spirits that he could you know flavor the beer up with and uh Here's all the axe marks when he thought the uh, feds were going to come and get them. And they, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have all that stuff on hand and they're, you know, they're not shy about their, their history. It was really, really, really cool. So uh, what, what was the, you know, the, the beginning of the American uh, brewing scene? How, how did, how did that start? I mean, what, what was this? If before lager, I mean, to me, you, t- you talk about fashion coming around full circle. If you go back to, uh, you know, from the, the founding of the country right up to the 1840s, uh, pardon me, the, yeah, the 1840s, you'd be seeing ales, porter, stouts, India, pale ales advertised, not a lager, right? Because that didn't come over until it came with, um, they got the yeast in the 1840s to be able to brew the style uh, in the United States. But it was just a fraction of the alcoholic um, beverage category in the United States. I mean, we were, we were nasty. We were, we drank a lot of hard alcohol, hard uh, whiskey and um, Madeira and and hard ciders and higher alcohol products. Um, And that was, it was a, just a very small fraction in comparison on a per capita basis. And then when lager came, um, that's what really, you know, we think of um, beer as, uh, particularly the adjunct lager beer, which is the fo- primary focus as a sort of a national beverage within the alcoholic category. Uh, that's when it really started to take off, 1840s to 1870s. It was a Dunkel style, all malt Bavarian beer, and that was brewed exclusively. Although we might touch on it later in the 1860s, uh, they were already brewing well before Anton Schwartz came here, uh, corn, corn brews um, mm-hmm. in various locations across the United States. But then came Pilsner, you know, in 1870s. And that just exploded beer, not just here, but around the world. As a style, Pilsner became a, uh, a, a marketing phenom, even in Germany and, and other places. So, but in here, uh, we had our idiosyncrasies that maybe we'll talk about in a bit, that um, we wanted it crystal clear and I, when it was ice cold in a glass. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now, you know, to me, that, that reign of adjunct lager beer that really started by the 1880s, 1890s, uh, the vast majority of beers, uh, lager was adjunct uh, to the point it was almost extinct or mentioned as being almost extinct in 1908 federal hearings. Um, and then it's continued its uh, reign. It's been chipped away at obviously in the last 30 years. I think I joined the American industry at the apex. And then every year I've been here since the late 1980s, it's gone down. I don't, that's not, that's correlation, not causation in my opinion. Um, but then now we've, where we come, we come full circle, as I mentioned. You know, these ales and porters and stouts and IPAs, I mean, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it's um, I'm so happy and it's, it's to be alive right now uh, as an American that likes beer. I mean, yeah. craft and, you know, macro, this, there's no other place on the planet that I'm aware of. And I've seen a lot of it over the years. Um, you know, it's a better place to be if you like beer. So um, we've kind of got uh, the two revolutions meeting as one, the Pilsner, the adjunct with the craft. And they're duking it out um, and will be to be determined. But that's still got legs, adjunct lager beer. Right. Uh, and you, well, and you, you even see, you know, uh, smaller craft brewers. Uh, yeah. Adjunct lagers. Um, you know, a friend of mine just down the road at True Symmetry, he, he brews, uh, you know, a rice uh, 
adjunct logger, uh, you know, fairly frequently. You yeah, know, and, I'm, and I'm really delighted. I've been in since some of the MBA papers came out. Um, I'll leave them anonymous, but I've been contacted about rice, where to get it, the history, you know, mm -hmm. sending them papers, you know, written in 1800s by American uh, brewers, brewing scientists about the use of rice, you know, part of the heritage that is, um, you know, that is part of our American heritage for sure. And I'm really delighted to see, you know, 14 years is a long time, especially in today's world, right? Mm -hmm. And when I look back in 2007-ish, you know, sort of adjuncts for verboten to see the researchers and even in some cases of corn, you know, in various parts of the country, because it, it is part of our heritage. It's part of our, our history. And, um, you know, craft beer, if, if, it, if I'm learning from my son, it's about anything. It's about heritage and history and styles. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's part of our American history and our journey as a nation uh, in brewing. Right. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we'll hear more about uh, American uh, brewing history right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back talking with John Casey about uh, the history of American uh, lager, adjunct lager brewing. And so you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, when lager first came to the U.S. and it started brew being brewed in the U.S. Uh, 1840s, did you say? I mean, yeah, it, I always heard stories that, you know, some German brewer got a brick of yeast from, you know, pressed all the moisture out of a brick of yeast back in Germany, tuck it in, tucked it in a shirt and brought it over. And that's how it kicked off here. Is that is that true or? Well, yeah, true is a powerful word because uh, that, that requires facts. And uh, much of that um, period, the eight, late 1830s, right up to 1842, you, depending on the author and the source, I um, mean, you can see various um, explanations for how the yeast arrived here. You know, I look at, um, you know, um, when Vest the, you know, eventually became um, uh, Frederick's Fact Brewery, uh, there's good documentation there that it came over in a barrel of sawdust. And, uh, you know, that was sort of a desiccant, if you will, and uh, was able to uh, revive enough yeast to eventually make a lager beer um, with, with, with repitching as they had concentrated the, the lager yeast over the indigenous wild yeast. Um, but this, it's, you know, in, I've heard it in loaves of bread, for example, there's always some kind of a desiccant material. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, yeast was a product in German breweries at the time, so they were well accustomed to, you know, putting it in a, in a, in a way that it could be transported and used elsewhere. Um, but I, there, to me, there is no definitive answer, both to the exact date and location. You'll see uh, Frederick Lauer in Reading, Pennsylvania, for example, um, as being frequently, if you Google search, but Frederick Lauer personally um, said, no, it wasn't me. And, you know, and he, was, he lived a long life and he gave credit to a guy named Wagner. So, um, and then you get all these other claims uh, of being the first to brew lager beer. But it's safe to say that it was started by 1840, 1842, but just, it was a beer brewed by Germans for Germans. I mean, it was, you know, there was the stigma of, you know, there, you know, America, well, they weren't too hard on this Canadian, you know, immigrating to the United States. Every group kind of takes its uh, shots and the Germans, the Dutch, the Deutsch, you know, the Dutchmen, you know, they, you know, Deutsch, Dutch, Dutchmen. I mean, it was considered a beer of them. And you, and you really see this progression, 1870s, 1880s, where they, even in the media, they say all Americans, you know, like this style of beer. And that's when lager really took off. But 1840s. And then when did adjunct lager take off? And what, what was the, the, the transition from, uh, you know, uh, the all malt uh, German beer to adjuncts? Or were they yeah, adjuncts in Germany at the time? That, that was Pilsner. Uh, Pilsner, you know, in the 1870s, uh, Pilsner really, really uh, became a global phenomenon. And in the United States, um, when you look at cultural differences, I guess, between uh, Americans and how, again, we got to go back 150 years, right? Uh, and many of these idiosyncrasies are still true today. But uh, if you look back, I mean, Americans, we like our beer cold. You know, many, you know, still to this day, you know, we drink it colder than most of the world. Uh, we, we drink it uh, relatively quickly. We don't linger in beer gardens and quaff it. And uh, we, ne- we certainly don't look at it as a form of nutrition. We look at it as a form of refreshment. And all these things that were cultural norms in the United States, but not relevant in the German market, a German consumer doesn't, didn't really care about most of these attributes. They, they didn't even see the beer by and large in the 1870s and 80s. They were drinking out of you know, stone steins. And there's a wonderful quote from the uh, head brewer at Schaefer in the late 1800s. Germans drink beer with their tongues. Americans drink beer with their eyes. And uh, that's so true. Um, and that profoundly impacted how the style evolved in the United States. Um, in the second paper, as John, as MBA editor, is well familiar with, and the MBA, um, you know, they were using adjuncts in Germany for the same purposes, but not nearly to the same extent as eventually it evolved in the United States. And we know from transcripts in the 1880s, 90s, 1900, 1910s, a lot of them arrived in the United States already versed from brewing in Germany with rice in particular um, as an adjunct. But it was a perfect, you know, to get to 30, 40% adjunct, which was much higher than any adjunct records I find in Germany. Um, that was the combination of six row, which is higher in protein, for example, uh, and chill haze potential, and to dilute it out with 30, 40% adjunct became a quintessential American style of beer. And indeed, you know, now 150 years later, you could say it's quintessentially the world's beer. You can always get, no matter where you go, you can always find an adjunct lager beer brewed by some brewery in that continent. So um, it's, it, it really, it began in Germany, as I talk about, and terribly biased, though it was uh, perfected in America with, especially with the two-bird type yeast, but that's a whole other story. Hmm. 
Well, yeah. what, do you have any idea of why the Germans started brewing with adjunct? I mean, was what was the impetus there? You know, that's a really good, that's a really good question. I suspect, you know, when Germany became, uh, you know, you get studying German history, uh, Ger the German Empire, they call it the Second Reich. We all know what the third one was, right? Well, the Second Reich was the 1871, 1872 to the fall at the Weimar Republic in 1919 and the end of World War I in 1918. Um, it was uh, the reason the German tax code, the Reichstag imposed, uh, when you get search the records, there's taxes for malt, um, rice, sugars, syrups, all these adjunct materials, because prior to 1871, in 1872, when the Reichstag implemented this, um, they were free to use these other materials without paying tax. It was only malt that was taxed. You know, kind of oh, like it okay. is in Bavaria, right? Um, so, so it all comes I, back to money. It, it followed money. That's my that's my belief. I can't say a German said this in this transcript, but um, I do know from the, the Reichstag uh, transcripts that um, the only reason they were added, not Bavaria, of course, just all malt, but for the rest of Germany, which is the vast majority of the population in an area, especially then when the empire was quite a bit bigger than it is today, um, they added those as categories because they weren't getting tax money. Um, so it, you know, but then, you know, you look at that and you, you try to qualify that because there are credible references in the United States that demonstrate, particularly in the 1870s and 1880s on an extract basis, uh, rice was more expensive. And yet, and they were charging, you know, they were charging higher, as crazy as this sounds, in, in New York City during parts of the 1880s more for an adjunct lager than they were for an all malt lager because it cost them more. Um, that's obviously that has changed over the last century and a half, particularly with uh, liquid adjuncts. And, you know, you know, it's certainly much less expensive to brew with adjuncts than it is all malt. But back then, when it was born, when it was being nurtured, when it was being rolled out there and the brewers were being told, take back your all malt beer, this one sells, this one doesn't. You know, those kind of anecdotes are, are easily found in hearings and testimonies and, news, and uh, newspaper and trade uh, journal interviews. It was a novelty um, that the American industry perfected to be crystal clear when it was ice cold. And that, you know, some of the first memories of some very prominent uh, brewing scientists was coming to well before Statue of Liberty was there, but coming into New York Harbor and seeing signs for dyspepsia or, you know, stomach conditions from drinking ice water, you know, and they write that, you know, uh, Dr. Max Hennius, um, you know, his father was Aquavit in Denmark, anyhow, uh, it was one of his first memories was seeing signs for Americans ailing from drinking too much cold ice water, you know, so it was kind of an idiosyncrasy. Uh, that's still, I think, you know, Americans in our ice, it's, it's kind of our DNA. <laughs> Fascinating. I can't, I cannot live without ice. And the, I know, I know, one of the things, the zombie apocalypse comes, and I've, I've made this very clear. I'm moving north to where <laughs> I can find ice, like on the ground. You know, I'm not, I'm not hanging around where there ain't, uh, there's no ice. Yeah, I, get, I gotta warn you, Canadians are partial to being used for hockey, not consumption. So you might have a bit of a fight on your hand there, but I can I can translate for you. <laughs> that or I'll I'll you know uh, start generating my own power so I can run an ice maker. There that you go. Be, there you go. What I would I would start with. Yeah, but even a silly thing, and John, I mentioned this. When we moved to St. Louis in 1987. That's the first time in my life I ever saw an ice dispenser in the front of a refrigerator. 
1987. That's not that long. You know, Canadians don't have that. You know, we had those plastic ice cubes that you crack, and you know, we didn't. There wasn't a refrigerator I seen in my life that uh, you just put your glass in, and lo and behold, chunks of ice fall out. My kids and I were fascinated by that. Like, holy smolies, um, these Americans—they are different. But it, you know, it's just those little things that uh, you know point to a nation's culture, its history, its, you know, its, its unique uh, interests and habits. It is fascinating. So what, what year are we in right now? We're, we're kind of moved up into 1870. Um, yeah. right, you know, adjunct logger has taken hold in the United States. Um, Anton Schwartz has been evangelizing about it as well as other people such as Ludwig Hawker. Um, we're, you know, I guess, Tell, tell a little bit more about the adoption of adjunct lager into, into the breweries. Um, I guess, you know, moving from 1870 up to 1890. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that really is, you know, when I look back over the last 14 years, that window of time from the 1870s right up to prohibition, but mostly those last decades of the 19th century uh, was the controversy in the United States over the the use of malt substitutes. Yeah, I mean, it was a big, big deal. Um, and every single force in American society um, that had power, whether it was the Supreme Court, whether it was federal government, state governments, local governments, whatever, they all took their shots at telling these uppity uh, German-American immigrants to brew all malt beer. And they would, the irony of having in, you know, in, in literally in Senate hearings in Washington, D.C., having, you know, Germans defend the practice of using adjuncts uh, because you Americans seem to prefer it. You know, they, they don't say it makes more money for them, but that's obviously in between. But it, it's that period is remarkable because that's where on a per capita basis, um, we got close by the end of the 19th century to the highest per capita for beer that we would not see again until the 1970s, you know? And yet this occurred in an environment where every institution said, no. I mean, it started, uh, it started um, 1860s, for example, you mentioned Ludwig uh, Hacker. Um, he came over, he spent all of 1863 with his, his patent on the use of Indian corn, pardon my, it wasn't what they called it then. Um, but he went around all, virtually all of the United States, North and South during the height of the civil war. And um, he, he, he writes his chronicles, he wrote them a few years later, saying he was ran out of um, uh, Indiana when they got wind, he was going to do a test brew of his corn, and the townspeople got together and ran him out of town. You're not going to mess with my all-malt beer. Uh, he met um, brewers in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, who said, yeah, we've been using corn for about 10 years, we don't tell anybody. You know, keep, you know, you can't, you know. so it Kentucky was kind of a, there's plenty of... Uh, information and archival in, uh, research to show that, you know, we were using corn in the 1860s, you know, sort of before it exploded in the 1870s. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it was just because every brewery to this day, and, you know, as far as I never owned a brewery, but 1862, they had to keep a track and report to the federal government, every pound of every material used to brew beer in that brewery and reported to the federal government. Uh, it was called internal revenue then, and it was played a large role in funding the um, the beer tax. Played a lot, a large role in funding the um, the uh, the victory of the union during the Civil War. Um, so, but dutifully every month, those materials were reported, 
in 1870s, newspaper reporters could just go into the internal revenue and ask for the data. And that's when the you know, proverbial SH, you know what, hit the fan in cities from Milwaukee, Cincinnati, St. Louis, New York uh, City, for example, because reporters, diligent reporters could get that information. And the outrage, you know, and it started there sort of with the, the media being outraged by the use of malt substitutes. And then it kind of cascaded up through the powerful levels within American society, local governments, state governments, federal governments. And it's just a surreal um, struggle, um, which is the heart and soul of uh, much of the uh, later volumes of books. We'll talk about that later. Hmm. But um, it's an inspiring story to me because, you know, they fought very hard to protect our rights to brew materials of our choice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to think that what would have happened if that hadn't happened is kind of like, you know, beer says very, very profound. But yeah, so it, so even despite this 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and right up to just for the prohibition, um, this beer exploded it, and was very, pub, the public was very aware, they, you know, in terms of the use of corn and rice uh, to make this beer. And, um, you know, and it didn't stop the powers that be that, you know, by and large, you know, overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon in their heritage, if you will. And they thought they, you know, tell, you know, we know better. And the Germans, as I mentioned, were saying, German Americans were saying, no, um, we, you, and they want to ban wheat, for example. And they'd patiently tell McKinley, future president assassinated in Buffalo, that wheat's used to make style beer in Berlin. It's a normal material used in Germany. So you read these transcripts and it's just like, it's kind of a, a crazy. So that's um, the societal debate. And, you know, the first use of the Smithsonian in DC uh, were the beer hearings uh, in the first week of August, 1911, because there were so many parties that wanted to have a say, um, should most substitutes be banned? Should we have an American Reinheit Scabot? They didn't call it that word because that didn't happen until much later in terms of general use. But uh, they were very well aware that Germany had gone that way in 1906. And uh, they're ready to go, even despite all these decades, 1890, they started the federal to, to 1911. They want to have an American Run High School, but then lawyers, of all things, uh, said, no, you don't have the mandate for that. You know, you don't have, you can't set the standard, you know. So we evaded um, an American Run High School boat uh, at that time. Yeah. So there's so many different organizations pushing for all malt beer. You had the barley farmers. You had the maltsters, you had, I guess, um, well, I guess you almost call them grassroots organizations fighting for food, food purity, um, cross-country transportation of meat and refrigeration was big at the time. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of concern about food spoilage. And I guess maybe that colored these uh, perceptions of beer and malt substitutes, would yeah. you say? Yeah, that's a great point, John. That, that definitely, if I had a penny or a dime for every time the word adulterated. Um, and you know, the FDA, we call it the FDA now, but the Food and Drug Act of the uh, Pure Food Congress, which was called in the late 1800s, gave the founding of the modern FDA in 1906. And there's absolutely no question uh, American society needed that. Uh, okay. food, food and beverage, you know, things were killing people. You know, most you know, there was a lot of people, a lot of soldiers in the um, in Cuba in the Spanish-American War, 1898, that died of toxins, you know, from contaminated food. Oh. So the, the government, the people, society knew we needed to do something in terms of establishing standards. 
And um, that definitely, uh, particularly when we got into the 1890s and right up to that 1911, 1912 period, um, that theme of pure food um, adulterating, being used as a basis to say, this is why we need all malt beer, definitely factored in. 1890, um, it was transparent. The transcripts, um, was that Turner adulteration that started this, uh, the first question, uh, Jamil, um, the, they read it, with, with, which stopped the Ryan Heiskabel being imposed then, was they read into the transcripts, the brewers did, because many of them were malsters as well. Back then, most brewers malted their own malt, uh, their own barley to make malt. Uh, they read into the transcripts, you can read them, um, in, the, in the Library of Congress, you know, uh, special interest groups advocating to say, we will agitate on behalf of banning use of malt substitutes. These are lawyers in DC, lobbyists. You send us this amount of money, we will start to agitate. Uh, and that was really the death blow to the legislation. That one, 1890, they didn't weave in pure food or whatever, that kind of came later. But, you know, the, 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 the one where they beat around the bush was, didn't beat around the bush was 1890. But even 1911 at the Smithsonian hearings, you know, the, the um, maltsters were open in saying it would be good for the American barley farmers if we um, didn't use rice because um, that was preferred for many. And let's not forget, this was not that long after the Civil War, right? And in New York State, for example, uh, there were frequent references to, we don't grow rice in New York. Why would we use it? Why would why, why don't we ban it? You know, it's not good for our farmers. And helping out Southern states probably didn't wasn't high on their priority list. Um, so it was a, an interesting time with different aspects of history. But that's a long-winded way of saying to your question, John, yeah, that, that adulteration was used, but there was never, to the best of my knowledge, and I've looked extensively, Never a documented case of um, anyone getting sick from drinking an adulterated beer uh, in the United States. They certainly did in England. Arsenic poisoning, 1901-ish, I think, you know, with uh, the coal used and generate the sulfuric acid um, for production of glucose um, was contaminated with arsenic. A lot of people died. And that kind of was, they were aware of that. That made its way into New York papers. Hey, look what's happening in England. Hundreds of people are dying from drink, drinking beer with liquid adjuncts. They didn't call it that, but they mm. called it glucose and uh, grape sugar. Um, and so, yeah, that was on people's minds for sure. But they still kept drinking it. You know, <laughs> it just, uh, <laughs> well, you know, may, maybe this one won't kill me. So I'll, I'll try this one. <laughs> uh, let's take another short break. When we come back, we'll, we'll hear more of the fascinating history of American uh, bloggers after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Just want to tell you about our good friends at uh, Brew Chatter and Sparks Nevada. Right up near near Reno. Uh, if you're deciding on making a lager of any kind or any kind of uh, beer in your home brewery, they have all the goods for you. They got the yeast. They've got uh, you know if you want to use rice, they've they've got that too. If you want to make uh, 
yourself a pre-prohibition uh, lager, they could tell you how to do it and make a great one at that. So check them out, brewchatter.com. Tell them, uh, tell RJ and Josh that we sent you and they'll take good care of you. All right. Uh, so before the break, you just told us about, uh, you know, hundreds of people dying in, in England from uh, the, the glucose that was made and got contaminated with arsenic and uh, killed a bunch of people, but they kept on drinking beer anyways. It seems like the plucky British spirit to just keep soldiering on <laughs> regardless of the uh, regardless of the problem. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that was nothing compared to Hitler a few decades later. But yeah, yeah, stiff upper lip, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Is that an effect of the arsenic, maybe? You know, stiff oh, upper probably. lip? But I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The limey, of course, was the fruit to ward off scurvy, you know, the vitamin C. But uh, uh, what about arsenic and the stiff upper lip? But uh, mm-hmm. I guess was not. And there was, a, there was something in Canada, too, in the 1950s. Where some people got some pretty sick in Quebec, but I can't remember what the root cause. But yeah, I, <clears throat> there are many, many claims made, particularly in the papers, that you know American brewers were using hop substitutes, and many of which were obviously quite toxic. You know, it didn't make any sense; they wouldn't be making that and drinking it themselves with their own families. But many, many claims made that um, dangerous substitutes were being used in the United States. Not once have I seen any of that validated. Uh, with the exception, if you want to consider salicylic acid, which was a preservative used, we don't use it today. Um, and I'm still isn't you know, that the stuff used in uh, heat rub? Is it? I don't know. Yeah, have to look. I don't. Salicylic acid. Aspirin. Um, yeah, it was used um, hmm. um, in both in Germany. Your Germans were using it for export um, uh, to preserve the beer to give it a chance of arriving non-turbid. Um, but it was also used, some of that was used in American breweries because it was kind of common around the world, particularly for export beer. I mean, isn't salicylic acid, isn't it baby aspirin? Isn't I think it it's got Bayer aspirin. Yeah, it's got linkage to that. And, and Bayer makes it as a patent. So yeah. there's, your, yeah. there's your answer. So, a, but I, you know, they were doing studies uh, in France and England, United States uh, and Germany on what does it take to make you sick? with salicylic acid and it was, you know, way above, you know, whatever you'd get in a glass of beer, but that's the only, and that's how people consume it. Yeah. That's tangential. (laughs) You you never drink enough beer to get anyhow, but um, yeah, all these claims were made, but never proven. Yeah. So I guess the, the purity of beer was a common issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and the, the definition of what is beer. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that those three words, what is beer question mark, three words with a question mark, um, dominated headlines uh, leading up to World War One. Uh, when I when you know, when I looked at uh, you go to newspapers.com and referring to the, um, the hearings at the Smithsonian in letters as big as when we went to war with Spain in 1898 on the front page. What is beer question mark? I mean, it seems bizarre to think of it today, but. Back then, because you know the only media, the only way of getting news was the media, the newspapers. Of course, back then, um, it was a huge issue, uh, and it 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 was a huge issue in American society, beginning with those newspaper reporters in the 1870s, culminating really right up until then. Um, and there were many casualties. Uh, the, the pure food, if you will, uh, was used, for example, by the state of Missouri. 
um, they banned, and that's a re- there's a really fascinating story of this guy by the name of uh, he called himself General Bill uh, uh, General uh, Bill Ryder, but his nickname was Pure Beer Ryder, and he had introduced pure bills pure beer bills into um, Jefferson City almost on a yearly basis, beginning in the late 1870s, to ban the use of corn rice. Well, fast forward to 1899, the Missouri legislature decided they would ban any beer made in the state of Missouri or passing through the state of Missouri that contained corn. And I know you're thinking, you know, it sounds like Anna's or Bush is doing. Uh, no, it wasn't. I mean, they, that, this really wasn't. This was uh, the farmers of the state using this pure beer rider as a lobbyist to get this bill passed so they could uh, build macadamized roads for bicycles in rural Missouri. I mean, it was, it was in the legislature, it was blatantly said this, we will inspect beer, but there was no test to test beer uh, that I'm not, I'm not aware of today. You can say it has corn or rice or whatever, but it was basically just a charge on the local brewing and anybody that was passing beer through the state of Missouri and Fred, uh, Fred Papps um, in Milwaukee. Uh, and I love this because the, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch says the foreign brewer Frederick Papps. I mean, you know, you yeah. try to get again. This is eighteen American born and raised. Yeah. Was, you know, I now I get United States of America as a, as a naturalized citizen. They took this seriously. It is, you know, I thought it was somebody in Belgium or Holland or Germany, but it was Missouri or pardon me, Milwaukee, Wisconsin was foreign. But uh, he sued the state of uh, Missouri and it went all the way up through each of the levels of the courts and went to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court agreed with the state of Missouri, saying it was a food safety to your long-winded question here, that they had the right uh, to, to inspect it from a food inspection, and it was a food inspection law, even though there was no testing they did on the samples, there's no way of validating what they were doing, and they acknowledged in the, you read the transcripts in the legislature, it was purely a revenue-raising method for the lobbyists to get these roads in rural Missouri. They made no, they didn't hide it, that it was a revenue-generating uh, but it was actually passed as a food inspection and safety. So Fred Papp lost. And interesting, um, you know, in terms of the Jim Crow mentions nowadays, Justice Brown on Supreme Court was the one that ruled uh, uh, for dissent. Uh, he was with Fred Papps on this one. Uh, he didn't get things right on some other things, but uh, on that one, um, he uh, was with Fred Papps, but Fred lost. It was a one by um, a close vote. There's no document. They what you, know, you can't. They couldn't inspect. You could, there's no way of testing yeah, for corn yeah. um, that I know of. Certainly not in 1899 and right up to the uh, First World War. Hmm. We did have a period, um, an unofficial American Ryan High School vote. Did you know that? No, no, I didn't. Uh, the last two, uh, the last two months before Prohibition, uh, future President Hoover, who was Food Administrator Hoover. 1918 forbid American breweries to use any malt substance corn rice in anticipation of Belgian famine relief. And this may be a segue to World War II, but for two months, um, American brewers were forced uh, to brew only all malt beer. And you see American headlines, newspapers saying the best beer to be the, the last beer to be the best. Finally, all malt, you know, but it wasn't passed under an FDA. It was passed um, on the, um, the need relief. to preserve food grains for anticipated food shortages, particularly in Belgium, uh, and for the last two months. And it's a riot to read the trade journals like, 
oh my God, we got to make an all malt beer. Um, how do we make it the way, you know, to taste like and look like and be like the national beverage. And I can know from, I know from personal experience, uh, I'll leave the brewery unnamed, uh, but we tried uh, to make a very popular brand of light beer in America today with all malt. We couldn't do it. And I think we had some of the best minds and chemists and microbiologists in the century. Um, so, but it was kind of interesting to read the panic, uh, which seems counterintuitive, right? Oh, all malt. Oh, no. You know, uh, but that's what it was. And then prohibition came and made it all moot, of course. But uh, yeah, we did have it. And we did have it for two months. And how did the uh, World War One, World War Two affect uh, American brewing? Oh, that's great. That's a really good question. You know, segueing um, from that World War One uh, prohibition, nineteen nineteen and nineteen thirty three, and we just had uh, April seventh, right? The uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of celebrate Beer Day, that's when uh, President uh, Roosevelt signed. You know, said three two beer wasn't intoxicating. It was legal. And then in December of the same year, 1933, uh, beer became, with the exception of local idiosyncrasies, modern sort of beer in terms of alcohol content for lager. Um, and, it, you know, that, and we can talk about this in some of the books perhaps later, but the Americas have been kind of accustomed to a heavier, sweeter, non-alcoholic beverages from 1919 right up to 1913, uh, 1933. And when um, beer came back online, um, when you look at the average materials used in a barrel of beer from 1934 right up to the First World War, it was actually some of the heaviest uh, lager in terms of you know skewed higher malt, less adjunct than had been in the 1890s or even 1910s. So uh, I attribute that to the euphoria of brewers being brewers. If we're going to make beer after 20 years, I'm going to make the beer I like. But then you see this plateau, and then it dropped. You know, going in. For 1936, 37, 38, you would think that would have continued to rise because it was only, you know, production and per capita. It wasn't just, you know, one or the other, it was both. You start, it peaked in the late 1930s and it started to decline. Then all of a sudden, World War II comes and boom, it went from 50 million uh, barrels roughly to almost 90 million barrels over a a five. I mean, you think of that in terms of modern percent, if we're 200 million today, You know, you think of that in seven years, I mean, every craft brewer and macro will be salivating in the extreme over growing so much. Um, was but, was but, that because the the beer was being shipped overseas for, for the war effort? Or was it because people were like, well, there's a war on, so I might as well drink. It's like a pandemic thing where <laughs> yeah, the pandemic that, comes and people just like started drinking. I, more. Well, that's a great question, Jim, because I... Yeah, and I think it's kind of like, um, you know, was the Ryan High School boat passed in 1516 for quality or for safety or for, you know, protect, you know, there's a billion reasons that are thrown out there as to why. Um, and uh, in this first book that's coming out with the NBA, we talk about, well, why in the heck did American beer explode it to the degree that it did? Was it thirsty troops in the Pacific Islands? And, you know, was it um, people had more money in their pocket? Because, uh, you know, with the depression past and the American economy on hormones, you know, was it, you know, was it driven by that? Um, or was it driven? And this is what I argue, um, both in the MBA papers and in the uh, first volume in this series of books with the MBA, um, that was the beer. Um, and it's, it ties in uh, so nicely, I believe, to so many of the myths um, associated with 
the use of adjuncts. When did, you know, adjunct lager beer take off in the United States? You can still find it in the book to show countless examples of it started in World War II, um, you know, when malt was hard to come by and brewers started to use corn rice, 41, 45, and kept using it because it was a profit-saving um, measure, right? I mean, that that's right. sort of paradigm. It's been disproven by Maureen Ogle and, and uh, other authors for sure. You know, we've talked at length here about the use of adjuncts from 1870s right up to 1940s. So it really didn't start there. But the interesting part was during the war, um, the only material of the traditional brewing materials, by then traditional in America meant malt, rice, corn as the, the main grains, right? Um, the only difficult, the most difficult materials to get were rice and particularly corn during the war because there were so many neat applications for corn and corn starch and corn products for military needs um, that the preferred sources of you know, refined starch, flaked starch, for example, just disappeared. I mean, the military got priority for those. Um, malt was kept virtually unchanged at the level it was when the United States entered the war. So throughout 1941-1945, with the exception almost to the last few months of the war, malt was almost 100% what it was in 1941. But yet you had, we went from like 50 to 90, right? It was fixed malt, so something I had to give, right? You're not going to. And that's when the, um, the industry exploded with the use of non-traditional, but um, period-specific malt substitutes, raw barley. Um, particularly, and, and the sorghum grains, kaffir corn and milo maize, milo or milo maize, I don't know, I've never Milo-Milo. figured out which, I don't know, so anyhow, <laughs> cap, let's just say sorghum grains, and soybean flakes from 1943 is when we first had that, when the United States really ramped up militarily, and corn just disappeared from the market, um, and we started using, in the hundreds of millions of pounds, you know, as replacements for corn, particular, things like, you um, sorghum grains and, and uh, barley grits. Uh, RAR came up with uh, barley grits and Freighter came up with a pre-gelatinized uh, barley flakes, but it was raw, just different forms for use, depending on what the brew house capabilities were. Uh, and then came 1945 to 48, when the United States was basically the world's breadbasket, world's kitchen. Um, when you think of all of the supply chains shot to heck in Asia and Europe, uh, the world needed to be fed to avoid global um, famine, global un- instability, particularly in the period after the war in the United States, along with Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia in particular, uh, provided uh, food aid to especially Western Europe uh, to be able, and included in those were sorghum grains, which I just mentioned for use in the war. Those are foods too. So the irony is uh, this growth, this 50 to 90 that took place in 41 to 49, much of it took place in 45 to 49 when sorghum grains, corn, rice, all these others were going to feed people. And in from 45 to 49, you see the use of uh, cassava from South America exploding in use. And I've been in touch with you on that, John. And again, yeah. these are in the tens of millions and cumulatively hundreds of millions of pounds as substitutes um, for these traditional malt substitutes. So in that period, um, from about 43 to 45, 46, you see adjunct, percent adjunct, the ratio of adjuncts to malt actually creep above malt. We were using, and that window there is when the growth exploded, you know, in terms of the most rapid growth, the lightest beer correlates, and that's the debate, is it causation or correlation? 
to um, particularly the highest adjuncts. use of adjuncts that had been done to that point in the style's history beginning as long back as the 1870s. But then after the war, because uh, malt wasn't a food, so brewers did have malt after the war, it's just adjuncts, <laughs> ironically, per the myths, they start to use adjuncts or kept, no, the adjuncts are the hardest to get after the war. Malt went right back to normal right away. They didn't need it to make bombs and everything else. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a fast, it, it, then it starts to decline again. You know, it hit these and it wouldn't hit these, uh, exceed these numbers reached during the war years with the lightest beer. Keep that in mind. It was truly the lightest beer um, until the directed uh, development of the modern light lager, you know, and that's in the 1970s and early 80s, you know, with Bud Light, Coors Light and Miller Light and the rest. Only then did we surpass the peak industry volumes of the years just prior to Prohibition. Um, in both per capita and actual production. So uh, I see these two flowerings, if you will, in the industry in, in my parents' lifetime, my grandparents' lifetime, where it exploded when it was particularly light during the war. It kind of went flat. Yeah, you got the, the boomers. They changed everything and statistics start to go up. But then they, with the adjunct, with the evolution of adjunct lager beer in the modern light lager, that's when we saw it explode again to, to highs that, you know, reached there in the mid, late 1980s I talked about, but then have been declining um, nationally uh, in terms of domestically brewed beer. One, one more short break, and then uh, we'll, we'll come back and, and wrap up uh, talking about the history of American uh, lager and adjuncts impact on it. We'll be back right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like Wine Guys, Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Got a um, fair number of questions in the chat, too. No, okay. There's quite a variety, and I, I hate to interrupt, but um, interesting one here. Um, I've heard of pre-prohibition Weiss beer brewed in the United States with corn grits instead of wheat. Were Americans using vice and yeast back then? Um, any uh, knowledge on that, Greg? Uh, not, I mean, all I can say with certainty is I was surprised just how prevalent uh, vice beer was in the United States uh, in the 19th century. Uh, you look at the New York City directory, for example, um, count, you know, many, many brewers whose trademark was they brewed that style of beer. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I don't have, unless I have definitive evidence, I can't say yes. But I know wheat malt was used interchangeably in ales with malted corn, for example. Um, so it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, although I don't have a you know, specific brewery that I could say they did that. But uh, wheat beer, vice beer, you know, was very, very, I was surprised. I thought it was kind of a, came to the United States with the craft movement. But no, it came equally with the German wave in the 1840s, 50s, and you know, the 19th century. Uh, and that style of beer was very popular in the United States totally disappeared by the second world war and you know my my lifetime and was been uh, at least in the united states been revived by the american craft movement okay here's another one um joanne asks if uh, she's curious if Yung, uh, yingling brewed something in the 1820s different than their lager uh well they go back so they you know i believe and i i'm probably this one i went back in my archives downstairs you know, in terms of ales and porters and, you know, non-lager beers. Yes, uh, they certainly did. 
uh, Yangling became, um, you know, now it's the oldest brewery in the United States, lagers are predominant. But uh, one of his sons, I mean, set up the David G. Yangling Brewery uh, in New York City, and he was brewing adjunct lager beer. Um, and um, I, I, you know, when I was with uh, Stroh, um, I know uh, from all the formulations as we brewed every one of Yingling's brands in Lehigh, I know it's in there. Uh, so I wasn't surprised, let's say, that David Yang, you know, Yangling in New York City signed that manifesto saying this is how lager beer is made in the United States. We use corn, rice, and, uh, and, and uh, sugar and, and uh, syrups. But he was one of the signees to that. So I noticed that name, Yangling. I went, hmm, interesting. But uh, he was quite a cad. Anyhow, um, hope that answers the question. Yeah, they, they were pre-logger for sure. Okay. Um, and then Kurt asks an interesting question. Uh, well, discuss history of the six-pack. And I guess this is a little outside of this uh, discussion, but uh, any ideas when the concept of the six-pack arrived? I'm sorry that uh, they decided on a six-pack because that's all that women were able to carry, they figured, or something. You haven't you heard that story? I've heard that story. All I could say with certainty, uh, from the 1840s to 1940s, I don't see any mention of a six-pack. I do see in the 1930s, for example, the light weighting um, of uh, getting away from wood, you know, in terms of the, you know, the carton and going to oh, fiberboard. Yeah. Uh, that was highly, highly promoted in the 1930s with, you know, Natalie Jess women with their feathers and the hats and everything, you know, walking into a Studebaker, whatever the car was, carrying a 24 pack of beer because it was light that, you know, the implication there was so light, even a, a spouse or housewife, but again, you got to remember the time this was, uh, could use it. So I, the light weighting, you know, was also applicable to the packaging materials as it was to the beer. Uh, but I don't see any memory. I don't see anything about six pack carriers uh, in my, my research. I haven't come across it. So that in and of itself says it was a post 1940s. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's probably about all the time we have on this show. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do this. Uh, Greg, if you can, if you can stay with us and, and do another, another episode, we'd, we'd love to have you. I know there's, there's a lot of fascinating things that you've come across over the, over the years, the last 14 years that uh, you could tell us about. So uh, if you're listening live, stay tuned. We'll have another episode uh, coming up right after this. If you are listening on the podcast, then it's going to be about another two weeks and uh, you'll, you'll see this uh, show, uh, the next show posted. Uh, until then, uh, make sure that you're, uh, you know, check out our, our fine sponsors, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com. Good folks there. Send a, a nice email to uh, John Blickman, uh, feedback at Blickman Engineering. Tell him how much you appreciate that he's paid for the show for the last 15 years uh, so you don't have to and, and our new sponsor uh, uh, brew chatter rj and josh check them out good folks up there and uh matter of fact i'm gonna be up there uh may 1st for big brew day we're gonna brew uh tasty ipa and janet's brown uh up there uh, may 1st so there you go that would be fun all right until then everybody brew strong brew strong everyone